Lord, we crown you once again as the Lord of our lives. Moment by moment, strengthen us inwardly the power of the Holy Spirit that Jesus Christ may dwell in our hearts through faith. And he would freely live his life through us. Lord, speak through me this morning to glorify yourself and your Son in the Spirit. In Jesus' name, amen. Take a seat. It is Christmas season. It is the season of Advent. And we're going to begin the next two weeks uh, talking about two common people. But we can talk about miracles this morning. Um, who are the, any hockey players in here? Anybody? Any hockey fans? Kraken, right? Kraken? Okay. Well, one of the best hockey teams to ever play the game, uh, believe it or not, did not come from Canada or the United States. It came from the former Soviet Union. The Soviet hockey teams of the 60s and 70s, they won the Olympic gold medal in 1964, 68, 72, and 76. And, of course, they were the overwhelming favorites to win their fifth Olympic gold medal in 1980. Uh, that 1980 Soviet Union team was considered one of the best hockey teams ever. Uh, and it was led by a player by the name of Boris Mikhailov. Um, it actually took a player who got cut on the last day of tryouts from the 1960 U.S. Olympic team, who then became a head coach to lead a, a very young U.S. hockey team to defeat the 1980 Soviet hockey team. And that player turned coach was, of course, Herb Brooks. Uh, I remember watching that game, sitting on the lap of my father when we were living in Michigan at night and watching that game. And um, I didn't know what hockey was. I was 11 years old at the time. But I was captivated by what was going on as everybody was. Um, on the night of this improbable victory in Lake Placid, New York, a young Al Michaels, do you know who he is? The announcer? He called the game, and his words in the closing seconds are even remembered to this day. Uh, he said this, he says, Johnson over to Ramsey, Belyatnov gets checked by Ramsey, McClanahan is there. The puck is still loose. 11 seconds. You got 10 seconds. The countdown going on right now. Morrow up to Silk. Five seconds left in the game. Then what does he say? Do you believe in miracles? Yes. And of course, unbelievable. And the United States upset the Soviet Union. It was considered a miracle for that young U.S. Olympic hockey team to upset the Soviets. And of course, the movie was made years later about this team and its unlikely triumph, and it was appropriately called what? Miracle. Now, as unbelievable as this upset in Olympic sports history was, it is not, folks, by definition, a miracle. A miracle, by definition, is an act or event, it's entirely supernatural and explained only by divine intervention. So, God halts the normal human processes and intervenes supernaturally. 
And what passes as a miracle today is in most cases just an unlikely human achievement. But Advent, the first coming of Jesus Christ, is the celebration of a real miracle. That should have gotten an amen from the congregation, so you obviously are sleeping now from the food that's in your stomach. Can I get an amen from the congregation? You're going to get a lot of these this morning? Okay, good. God has intervened supernaturally in human history. Now, beyond the miraculous fact that God sent his son, Jesus, to dwell in a human body, this work of God set off an explosion of miracles. Generally speaking, the Bible from Genesis to Revelation is a written record of God performing miracles all through human history. But there are three periods of human history when there is an unusual occurrence of miracles. The first period of outpouring of miracles was when? We're not counting creation and all that. The time of Moses. Remember the ten plagues? Remember the parting of the Red Sea? The water coming from the rock and all that? Okay. The second outpouring of miracles was when? Take a guess. Elijah and Elisha. Fire from heaven that consumed the water-soaked sacrifice, the supernatural extension of food from the widow of Zarephath, and so on. The third outpouring of miracles was the time of Christ and the apostles. The miraculous conception, the feeding of the 5,000, healings, the raising of the dead, etc. Now in each of the three instances, the outpouring of miracles accompanied a specific movement of God. Do you know that? With Moses, the miracles accompanied what? The delivering of the law. Okay? With Elijah and Elijah, it accompanied the work of the prophets. And with Christ, it accompanied salvation and the revelation of the New Testament. But there was something unique that preceded the outpouring of miracles at the time of Christ. You know what it was? No, it preceded. Silence. The last time God spoke, he said this. I actually put this verse up there. Can you even read that? There we go. This is the last verse of the, of the Old Testament. Behold, I'm going to send you Elijah the prophet before the coming of the great and terrible day of the Lord. He will restore the hearts of the fathers to their children and the hearts of the children of their fathers so that I will not come and smite the land with a curse and force everyone to eat deviled eggs. That's kind of in the original Hebrew, but it's a bad thing to eat deviled eggs and so on in peeps. That's the exact manuscripts include in peeps. So it's a curse if you do that stuff. Anyways, the next time God spoke from the time of Malachi was to a priest named Zacharias, the father of John the Baptist. Of course, he was Elijah to come and he prepared the way of the Lord. The time between Malachi and Zacharias was how many years? 400 years. 400 years of silence. God had not spoken for 400 years. But there is more. It had been 800 years since the last outpouring of miracles during the time of the prophets, Elijah and Elisha. The last appearance of an angel was during the time of the prophet Zechariah, 500 years earlier. 
It had been 500 years since the last miraculous act of God. Anyone want to take a guess what that was? Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the fire. In 400 years of silence. So you can imagine when God began to speak and miracles began to happen during the time of the life of Christ, the people were prepared and excited. And it wasn't just a short burst of miraculous activity. Uh, Miracles were coming at a rate never before ever imagined in the history of the world. Far more miracles than at any other time. And the question they were all asking was, are you Elijah? In John 1, 19, 20, just listen to this. This is what was said um, to John the Baptist. This is the testimony of John. When the Jews sent to him priests and Levites from Jerusalem to ask him, who are you? And he confessed and did not deny, but confessed, I am not the Christ. They asked him, what then? Are you Elijah? Now, why would they ask that? (laughs) That was the last thing that was said. And he said, I am not. Are you the prophet? And he said, no. The prophet referring to the prophet written in Exodus, which is reference to Jesus Christ. They asked Jesus this question in Luke 9, 18 to 20. And it happened that while he was praying alone, the disciples were with him. And he questioned them, saying, Why do the people, or who do the people say that I am? They answered and said, John the Baptist. And others say, Elijah. But others, that one of the prophets of old has risen again. And Jesus himself said this in Matthew 11, 14. And if you're willing to accept it, John himself, being John the Baptist, is Elijah who is to come. You see, the people were eagerly awaiting the arrival of Elijah, the forerunner who would prepare the way for the Messiah, the King of the Jews. And true to his word, God begins to move and breaks the long silence in a miraculous way through an ordinary elderly couple. And for those of you who are considered elderly in this church, be encouraged. Be encouraged. God can still use you in his wonderful plan of salvation. Now, there's a pattern to the way God works. He first speaks, a miracle of itself that God would even humble himself to speak to us, his creation. But he first speaks, and it's followed by the actual miracle. Now, during this time of speaking and the happening of the miracle, there's always an element of faith. God is moving, and he wants us to believe in him. And Christmas is a time for hope, it's a time for celebration, but perhaps more than anything else this morning you will learn it's a time for remembering to always walk by faith. And we will look at two stories of faith in the next two weeks, this Advent season, but we're going to begin by looking at the birth of John the Baptist and begin talking about common people. Turn to Luke, did I put this up there? Yeah, Luke chapter 1, verses 5 through 25. It says, In the days of Herod, king of Judea, there was a priest named Zacharias of the division of Abijah. Abijah, I don't know how to say that. I need Carol to read these for me. She does on Wednesday nights. 
And he had a wife from the daughters of Aaron, and her name was Elizabeth. They were both righteous in the sight of God, walking blamelessly in all the commandments and requirements of the Lord. But they had no child because Elizabeth was barren, and they were both advanced in years. And the first point I think that God wants us to see, and I want to point out, is the fact that look how ordinary Zacharias is. Let me give you some perspective. He's just one of 18,000 or so sons of Aaron who served as priests in the land. There was nothing special about him, but this is the type of person God uses. Abraham, Father Abraham, he was just a common nomad. Yet God used him to become the father of many nations. Joseph, the son of Jacob, one of the sons of Jacob, was so unpopular with his brothers, they sold him as a slave, yet God used him to guide a pagan nation through a seven-year famine. Moses was cast aside as a baby, yet God used him to lead a nation out of captivity. David, King David himself, was such an afterthought by his family, they didn't consider him one who could become king of the Jews. But God raised him up to that very position. Next week, we'll talk about Mary, a typical teenager, probably 13 years old, we think, that God used to miraculously become the mother of our Lord and Savior. The world is full of common people. You may not know this. Well, I know you don't know. Do you know who Cliff Baker is? Do you know who Bob Shore is? She might. Nobody else does. In the spring of 1988, I had not decided where I was going to go to college. I was coming back from Pennsylvania. We'd visited Grove City College. I had an offer, like a scholarship, an athletic scholarship to go there. Um, they wanted me to do, go there and play baseball and so on. And as I was coming back, and this was in the spring. Typically, you are done with your college applications, know where you're going. I didn't know. Driving back to Ohio, my mom and I talked, and she says, you know, you need to make a decision. And she said, would you consider Ohio University? I didn't feel like I wanted to go to Grove City anymore. I was kind of tired of athletics. I was just tired of you know, getting up at 6 and getting home at 7, every, you know, five days a week and athletics and everything. So I said, okay. But the problem was the applications were closed. But that didn't mean anything because I had a secret weapon. My grandfather. My grandfather was such a big name. I can't tell you how big of a name he was in southeastern Ohio. And he had so many of these kids in school that he knew people that were in the admissions office at Ohio University. So my mom made a phone call. He made a phone call. Went up the next day to admissions counselor. And because of my almost 4.0 and I was a fourth generation graduate there, or you know, fourth generation you know, attender, I was in in a matter of hours. And I couldn't, there's no room on campus, so I commuted the first quarter from my grandparents' place, about 20 minutes away. Now, God is sovereign. He has a plan. And at that point in time in my life, I originally wanted to be a veterinarian. I was living in Texas. I was going to go to Texas A&M. Okay? We moved from, to Ohio. I was like, I don't think I'm going to be a veterinarian anymore. Didn't know what I wanted to do. Well, I'll be a businessman like my dad. You know, work the eight-to-five job and have a family and watch sports on the weekend, stuff like that. Well, play golf and all that stuff. That's what my dad did. Well, so I went there, got in the school of business, and while I was there, that first 
first quarter, I was placed with Cliff Baker. Now, Cliff Baker was a, a, a guy that was socially awkward. Um, he had really thick glasses. He was a, a what's that, the, uh, you call the, the insurance major, what do they call that? Like life insurance, you know the term for that? Yeah, there is, actuary, yeah. Actuary scientist, something like that. He was that kind of a major. He was socially awkward. He was a believer, and he got involved with Campus Crusade for Christ. And so I come in, and we didn't really hit it off because he's used to having a room to himself because his roommate had left earlier that, that year. So we worked that out, but he was just burdened by the Lord to pray for me. At that time as well, a young staff couple, by the name of Bob and Jeanette Schwarz, had just finished raising their funds, and they reported to Ohio University, right at the same time I did. And through the prayers of Cliff Baker and the work of Bob Schwarz, I got involved in a Bible study and Campus for Christ and in ministry, and then here I am today. And what was unique about uh, Cliff is that he dropped off the face of the earth, basically. He left after that, that first year. It was clear to me and others his purpose was for me. He was, I mean, he was burdened to pray and would pray and pray and pray for me, and then he just burned out and went somewhere else. For a, a, a freshman to be involved with a staff member in ministry like that, I basically didn't get a spiritual degree like a master's in, in theology or an MDiv, but the experience I had those three and a half years under Bob Shore. Um, I had job, I could have gotten jobs at any church that I wanted to. They would hire staff members and graduates just like that because we were so well trained. I mean, I was regularly going to conferences and seminars and hearing teachings under Charles Stanley, for example, and, and others, the, the cream of the crop. But I got trained for those three and a half years, and now God prepared me for this event. Now, when I stand before the Lord, the great might throw judgment, assuming I do. And let's say I'm with Bob Schroer and Cliff Baker, the three of us are standing there. We will not be considered great. Where it says great and small, standing before the Lord, we're going to be considered the small. And let's face it, everybody else in here, in the eyes of the world, we're, we're small. Common people. But when God sees a Cliff Baker or a Bob Schroer, he sees something uncommon, because with those type of people, he can actually work through them, as he did, to fulfill his purposes. See, and that's kind of what Zacharias is, just a common person. God uses common people to do uncommon things. And that was the point that Coach Herb Brooks made to his team. I remember this scene where he says this to his team. This cannot be a team of common men, because common men go nowhere. You must be uncommon. And he was talking about the dedication it took to, be, to beat the Soviet hockey team. Uh, the common person, just a faithful, devoted servant, with a humble attitude, that's the type of person God uses. Let's go back to Zacharias. It says here that he's married to one of the daughters of Aaron which meant he married the daughter of a priest. She was named Elizabeth, which was the name of the wife of Aaron, the mother of all priests. So his background was priestly. Her background was priestly. And that tells us they were a group of people who were devoted to the service of God. 
And beyond their background, they were both righteous in the sight of God. You see that? It doesn't mean that they perfectly obeyed the law of God, but they had the faith in the coming righteousness of a Redeemer. And to the best of their ability, they obediently walked blamelessly in all the commandments of the Lord. And while they had a right family background and the right spiritual life, they didn't have the right social status, did they? They didn't have a child. In that society, that was tragic because it bore a stigma that you were cursed by God because you ate peeps. This was something that seemed permanent to this couple since they had prayed and tried for years to have children, but Elizabeth was barren. And now probably, and they're probably in their 70s, we believe. Elizabeth was still barren. Let's look at verse 8 through 10. Now it happened that while he was performing his priestly service before God in the appointed order of his division, According to the custom of the priestly office, he was chosen by lot to enter the temple of the Lord and burn incense. And the whole multitude of the people were in prayer outside at the hour of the incense offering. And this is very important to understand the background here, what's going on, because this is written here for a reason. Again, how many priests were there? 18,000 priests, broken down into 24 divisions. The 24 divisions were named after the grandsons of Aaron, the first high priest, who was, of course, what? The brother of who? Moses, exactly. Now, each of them got to serve at the temple two weeks a year, one week at one time of the year and another week at another time of the year. And during their week of priestly service, you know what they did? They were mostly made animal sacrifices. They were butchers, slaughtering Animal after animal for sacrifice. Zacharias was of the division of Abijah. And even under those divisions, they're divided into other orders and families. So Zacharias is simply performing the common task for a priest of his order. The uncommon comes in verse 9. And this is a great moment in his life. The custom of the priestly office was this. This is what they did. Every day at the temple, in the morning and in the evening, there was the sacrifice of the animal on the brazen altar of a spotless lamb and the offering of incense to God. Now, not every priest could do that. The priest was chosen by lot, and it was a very, very great honor. Great honor if your name was drawn, because many priests would never have their name drawn. In order to spread it around, it could only happen once in your life. It would bring this priest from the outer court of the Gentiles to the holy place. And only one priest in a day could work in there and offer that burnt incense and come right back out. So this is the pinnacle of Zacharias' priestly service. But, and I want to remind you of this, Zacharias wasn't just randomly chosen by the casting of lots because... Proverbs 16, the lot is cast into the lap, but it's every decision is from the Lord. It's the sovereignty of God. And that's also true for your life as well. So God in his sovereignty is about to reveal a new dimension of his plan of salvation. God will become a man. 
and save humanity from this curse of sin. But before that, the way must be prepared. This was a task for John the Baptist. He was about to be born in a miraculous manner by this elderly couple, a common priest and a barren wife, about to receive an uncommon message. And here it is. So in verse 11, And an angel of the Lord appeared to him, standing to the right of the altar of the incense. Zacharias was troubled when he saw the angel, and fear gripped him, but the angel said to him, Don't be afraid, Zacharias, for your petition has been heard, and your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son, and you will give him the name John, and you will have joy and gladness, and many will rejoice at his birth. For you will be great in the sight of the Lord, and he will drink no wine or liquor, and he will be filled with the Holy Spirit while yet in his mother's womb. And he will turn many of the sons of Israel back to the Lord their God. Verse 17, it is he who will go as a forerunner, he likes told us, before him in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers back to the children and the disobedient to the attitude of the righteous so as to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. Now, Zechariah's reaction to the first time visit of an angel in over 500 years is typical when a human meets an angel. I don't know what this angel looked like. He obviously knew it was an angel because the word troubled, it, it, it doesn't really communicate accurately what's going on here. He's actually terrified. That's what it means. He's almost overwhelmed with a gripping fear. But verse 13 gives us insight into the faith of this couple. You see that? Despite their age, what were they still asking God for? A child. Probably a son to carry on the family history of serving as a priest. And there's a lesson here for us. Don't give up praying. Don't. Be the persistent widow who wore down the indifferent judge with her constant requests. Always trust God in prayer for the miraculous. The initial words of the angel, they must have relieved some of his fears. Because when someone is terrified, they are not in a position, trust me, as you know from experience, to hear anything you say, but notice that that isn't the case. The angel delivers good news. The couple's prayers are answered. They'll have a son. They're name him John, which means, and don't skip over this, God is gracious. A preview of the grace of God that will be poured out in fallen humanity. Not only will they have a son, but think about this, all the shame of being barren, all the pain that the stigma of being childless brought upon them, the, all the behind-the-back conversations they overheard discussing their condition will be replaced with joy and gladness. In fact, it says everybody will rejoice because of the ministry given to this child. John is the answer to Malachi 4.6. He is Elijah to come, who will turn back the hearts of fathers to their children. He will prepare the hearts of men to make the way ready for the Lord. Now, I am sure Zacharias knew of the words of Malachi 4.6. This message must have shocked him. I can imagine he may have thought, my barren wife who is 70 plus years old and I will miraculously have a child. And our child is the answer to Malachi 4, the last word spoken by God 400 years ago. I mean, the range of emotions 
he felt must have been overwhelming. He felt terror in the form of gripping and paralyzing fear. The appearance of Gabriel to utter shock and amazement at the news of a child and the significant ministry given to this child. I mean, this child's ministry would only bring joy to everyone, but he's going to bring a message of rejoicing to the whole nation of Israel because they're going to repent and come back to God. John's ministry is going to point to the Messiah that's going to be the Savior of the world. And consequently, then joy is going to extend to the ends of the earth and to the end of time. Bottom line, this son that they were going to have was going to be an extraordinary person and have the greatest privilege that ever could come to a Jew, the privilege of being the first person to identify the Messiah. I mean, what stunning news. And perhaps that explains his response. And I entitled this, Believe or Else. Verse 18, Zechariah said to the angel, how will I know this is for certain? Well, I'm an old man, and my wife is advanced in years. Husband, that's a nice way to say that your wife is old. She's advanced in years. <laughs> Honey, you're old. Honey, you're advanced in years. Which sounds better? Neither. Neither, thank you. The angel answered and said to him, I am Gabriel, who stands in the presence of God, and I have been sent to speak to you and to bring you this good news. Behold, you shall be silent and unable to speak until the day when these things take place, because you did not believe my words, which will be fulfilled in their proper time. The people were waiting for Zacharias and were wondering of his, at his delay, in the temple. But when he came out, he was unable to speak to them, and he realized that he had seen a vision in the temple, and he kept making signs to them and remained mute. When the days of his priestly service were ended, he went back home, and after these days, Elizabeth, his wife, became pregnant, and she kept herself in seclusion for five months, saying, This is the way the Lord has dealt with me in the days when he looked with favor upon me to take away my disgrace among men. Now, Zacharias response, to be frank with you, it's, it's quite disappointing considering the faith that he and his wife demonstrated all those years in their prayers. And as a priest, his primary task, by the way, was to teach the Word of God, not to be a butcher. That primarily happened in those two weeks of service near the temple. Back in his local synagogue, there were some sacrifices, but he mainly would be a teacher of the Word of God. Since he was a teacher... That was his primary task. He knew the miracles God performed in the past. He knew that God chose to create the universe in six days. He knew that God chose to flood the entire planet. He knew that God chose to send a shower of fire and brimstone and bury the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah. He knew that God chose to part a sea so that two million people can walk through on dry land and a following army be instantaneously drowned as the sea which was parted closes on them. You know that God chose with his own finger to write his law in stone on a mountain that is shaking with fire and brimstone. He knew that God chose to feed an entire population of people with food that he creates on the spot as he did with the Israelites in the wilderness. You know, God chose to make water come pouring out of solid rock 
continue the story that God chose to cause the formidable walls of an ancient city named Jericho to fall flat to the ground. He knew that God chose to open the ground and swallow people up. And Zechariah certainly knew that God chose Abraham and Sarah. He knew of the faith of Abraham. In fact, he and his wife Elizabeth probably identified with the pain of barrenness that Abraham and Sarah wrestled with during their lives together. Abraham had a promise from God. He'd be the father of many nations, Genesis 12, 3. They simply needed to wait for God to keep his word. And guess what? Now Zacharias has a promise from God of a child as well. <clears throat> he knew that God chose them to miraculously conceive a child by faith in God's promise. Just like who? Abraham and Sarah. Yet, he still doesn't believe. Now, isn't it amazing that he'd been praying all this time for a child, God sends an angel to announce he's going to have one, he doesn't believe it. doesn't believe it. Zacharias' question reveals an unbelieving heart, and he wants what we all want when we think God is speaking to us, which is what? Confirmation that it's God speaking to us, right? Don't do that. <laughs> That's not a good thing, okay? He wants to be certain. I mean, what else more could the angel do? The first appearance of an angel in over 500 years should be enough for a priest to believe the message he delivered on behalf of God. By the way, God with a history of making and keeping promises. So a faithful promise is given to a faithless priest. Zacharias' unbelief comes with consequences, though. He'll be unable to speak. And that's a pretty severe price to pay. Because after butchering all those animals the rest of that week he was there, he went home. He can't speak until what was promised comes to pass. It also means he can't perform his duties as a priest, teaching in the local synagogue. But look at verse 20. Look how it ends. Which shall be fulfilled in their proper time. God is sovereign, and he will execute his plan, and it does not rise or fall on the faith of men. And that is exactly what happens. Elizabeth becomes pregnant. The child is born. Zacharias receives back his ability to speak. Everyone experiences joy. And John the Baptist prepares the way, just as Gabriel proclaimed. This begins the story of salvation, where the silence of heaven ends, and God, who at one time spoke in times past through the fathers and the prophets, is now about to speak through his son. And I believe this story is included in Scripture to remind us that this couple is a picture of true believers in every time and place. They were obscure, humble, common, righteous, obedient, prayerful, serving, and at the same time doubting, fearful, and even disciplined. That sounds like us, doesn't it? God blessed them. Sometimes he blessed them because of themselves and sometimes in spite of themselves. God is a God of humble beginnings. And God is a God of humble people. And he's still using common people. 
Folks, this is a time for faithful people like us to proclaim the truth of the Savior. Exactly what John the Baptist did. Every time this year, television is flooded with Christmas movies, Christmas specials, old and new. Have you ever noticed that the Christmas movies pretty much all have the same plot, the same thing? Believe. From the Polar Express to Elf to even the more recent last year, Violet Night, believe in who? Santa Claus. This is what the world has done to Christmas. Replace belief in the celebration of the birth of Jesus Christ as a Savior to belief in Santa Claus who brings nice children presents on Christmas Eve. (laughs) Am I wrong in that? No, I am not. Distract the world from the true meaning of Christmas. A time to honor your faith in Jesus Christ. So proclaim the truth of the Savior this Christmas season because you're not going to find any more, for the most part, Charles Schultz and the Peanuts in the Christmas story. It's almost impossible to find on television. And do you want to know why? Because it proclaims the gospel. So yeah, it's a time of hope. I mean, it's a typical Advent sermon series, hope, peace, stuff like that. Okay, let's look at what the text says. Yes, it is, but what does the text say? It's surrounding the birth of Christ. It's a time to believe in faith. God's intervening, believe, walk in faith. And that makes perfect sense. Because without faith, it's impossible to what? Please God. So this Advent season, this Christmas season, learn, relearn to walk in faith. Believe in Jesus. Amen? And that's the point here. That's the best thing you can do is share the good news of the gospel this time of year. You made it. You're awake. I mean, you're semi-awake. I mean, you're just thrilled that you made it through this guy's sermon. I can't believe I actually made it and listened to this guy. Okay? Let's stand with me. We'll close this song. Lord, thank you for this morning. Thank you for the food. Thank you for the fellowship. Thank you for the fun. And thank you for your son. Lord, bless the rest of our day as we close with this song that I hope is pleasing to you. And all God's people said, Amen. Amen.